If you're a regular listener to this podcast, and if you are, thanks, you'll probably notice that I like mixing it up. In other words, it's rare that you'll have similar back-to-back weeks, people from the same news outlet, people who do similar jobs. But for this new episode, I'm breaking away from that. Last week, Yang guest number 318 was Bill Plasky, Los Angeles Times sports columnist. And this week, for the 319th episode, I brought in TJ Simers, a <coughs> former Los Angeles Times sports columnist. And I'm doing so because the compare and contrast is so fascinating. When I told colleagues I'd be interviewing Bill, they were thrilled. When I told colleagues I'd be interviewing TJ, mm, a couple literally said to me, don't get mad if I skip this week. And I get it. I really do. But I like hearing different voices and getting different perspectives and understanding different life experiences. And I hope that you do too. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is TJ Simers, the former Los Angeles Times sports columnist who left the newspaper a decade ago, then sued for AIDS and health discrimination. This is episode number 319. Let's sling some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, TJ. Thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. And um, I was thinking of something as, as I sort of headed into this, which is I, I've been reading your blog and I know about sort of the way your time at the LA Times ended a decade ago and the lawsuit that followed. And in some ways, it kind of reminds me of when you see a great athlete, you know, when the career ends. And not even, I don't view it as hanging on, but I view it as sort of, there is like, I feel like there's a real sadness in your writing to a certain degree, especially on your blog is sort of, it feels a little bit angry at the LA times and sort of what's happened in journalism and what's happened to you. And that you were once this guy who was read by a gazillion people. And now you're like, what the fuck is going on here? But am I misreading that to a certain degree? No, I don't think so at all. I think, uh, you know, uh, that 10 years of uh, litigation took its toll. And so I had a choice to make and it's still not over, by the way. Do I hang up the laptop, so to speak, or do I continue to write? And, you know, I'm lazy at heart. I wouldn't mind watching Gunsmoke all day, but uh, I was trying on behalf of my children to stay alive still. So I uh, I continued to write and then there's no helping it. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, that's who I am. Give me a subject. You give me something to do and uh, I'm going to give my opinions. I want to get to the meat of this and then kind of uh, drift out of it. 2013, you're writing for the LA Times. You're in your 60s. You have some health problems and they start reducing uh, your amount of time in the newspaper. Is that where this all kind of started at the beginning of the end? It's a pretty good uh, recap. Yes. I was on a trip to uh, Phoenix area to cover spring training and I collapsed. Uh, we didn't know what it was. We thought it might be a stroke or whatever. Um, I came home, continued to work, and then uh, even, you know, broke a, a couple stories and uh, got called in and said, we're going to suspend you because, because of your TV show. And I said, I don't have a TV show. And we're going to suspend you because of the way you, your relationship with Mandalay Sports Media 
which supposedly put the TV show on. I'm sorry. If I had a TV show, I would promote it. Am I wrong? You had a skeletal idea for a TV show. Is that sort of what they were referring to? Probably going back 20 years until my agent uh, and I had an agent. And the Times was aware of all this, by the way. Okay. Uh, I had an agent and he said, don't ever write a script again. You suck. You know, so uh, I would meet with people. Last guy I met with was Mike Tolan, who did the uh, Lakers thing on TV. Mm-hmm. And uh, b- but they knew that. I had told him Mike Tolan. I had told him my agent's name. I had told I made fun of myself and my folly of trying to become mega TV guy. Right. So it was gone. It was behind us. It wasn't happening at that. I hadn't talked to Tolan in over a year. So you just think they wanted to get rid of you? Yeah. I mean, they had a new managing editor. The most he had said to me so far had been hello. And now he was saying goodbye. But they they rang up a number of charges against me. And uh, so we when we went to court, we had to dispute all the charges. They never proved a damn thing. Uh, there was nothing to prove. Um, they were just set out to make a change. Maybe this sounds dumb. If they had said to you, we want to make a change or we don't really feel like your column fits in blah, 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 blah. Wouldn't that have been the wiser move on their part? Yeah, but I would have fought it. I'd just been told by my sports editor, Mike James, you're a must read. I mean, he put it in writing, got the highest uh, review possible. What I was being told by my superiors wasn't what I was being then told by another group of superiors who were not involved in the uh, sports product. And so when I tried to discuss it, it didn't go well. Uh, they hired an internal investigator, the business editor, to investigate me. And she concluded there was no wrongdoing. She put it in writing and they never showed it to me. It just was a series of things. And one of the guys even made up a rule, which he put into the, um, uh, whatever we call it, the ethical code. And he didn't tell the boss that he had done that until a month before the trial. You know, they wanted to get rid of me. I was a dinosaur, believe me. I mean, I'm, I was 62 at the time. I was still writing all the crazy weirdo, you know, in your face kind of stuff. And that wasn't his cup of tea. The fact that he and his compatriot, the editor paper, got fired a couple of months later, uh, it had nothing to do with my case, but it showed you that they had a few problems. Was there a point along the way when you started realizing you were a quote unquote dinosaur, where things were shifting away from your approach to journalism? Probably the day I took the, the column. I mean, you know, let's face it. I mean, um, newspapering has changed so much. Uh, I, and I always felt, uh, it, you know, they always said if they removed the eye from my uh, laptop, I wouldn't be able to do a column. I always thought it was a personal endeavor. I wrote about my family. I put it. I put sports in the context of family, in the context of living every day. I went to a, you know, have my prostate looked out. I wrote about it. When I had skin cancer, I wrote about it uh, and called her a hatchet man, you know, for cutting my face. That's the way I dealt with Kobe and Shaq. And it was just everyday conversation. And who the hell are you? You're Kobe Bryant. Right? You can put a ball in the basket, but that doesn't make you any more special than that. But that made you a dinosaur in this business, believe me. But at some point, obviously, the times like that because you were sort of rolling along in your career. Well, that was one of the funny things. Um, uh, one of the, John Sherman, uh, assistant sports editor for the Times, got on the stand and it said, hey, everybody knows he's terrible. Everybody knows he's horrible. Well, they had taken my salary to $234,000 from 90000 You know, they had put me on every prime assignment. 
what they were saying and what they were doing didn't make sense. They didn't jive. So uh, it wasn't until the end that, in fact, that's how we won the first case. My lawyer said, so Simers wrote 2,038 columns uh, in his first X amount of 10 years on the job. Um, and you say you had a real problem with five of them. So she put all these Hershey kisses in a, in a, in a jar and pulled out five of them to show the jury and then poured the others in a wastebasket. So this is what you did to the rest of his career. You, you poured him in a wastebasket. And these five columns were approved by his sports editor and his assistant sports editor. So what was the problem? And that kind of turned it, I think, in our favor at that point. It was the folly of it. It was just noticeable. Is there an argument to be made? So I'm 51. I don't write for a newspaper anymore. But I could understand a newspaper saying, we're really trying to attract younger readers. You're not the guy to do it. Are there arguments to be made that columnists in their 50s and 60s maybe aren't drawing the audience and newspapers aspire to and that it is fair to have turnover based on age to a certain degree? Uh, stated that way, and that was a very good speech. Thank you. Uh, that works. But then you got to prove that young readers don't read what I wrote. Right. You got to prove that I have no readership at that point. I believe what I was doing, and that was part of reinventing yourself. And you said, you know, when did you realize you're a dinosaur? It was day one, and I had to reinvent myself. So I had to write to, you know, hit the young people, so to speak. And more than any other columnist, I was out in the field, more than any other writer, too. And I was making, quote, friends and enemies with Kobe. Kobe and I were friends, and we were enemies. Shaq, every big name, player, coach, owner, it was almost as if I was in bed with him and we were sparring. That's not a good illusion when you mention George's name. That I think I was hitting those audiences. I think I would. I think the what they were saying about me in, in the review at the very end and the way I was treated was, we like what you're doing. I'm no legal scholar, so it all confuses me a little bit. You originally won a fifteen point four no, million no, dollars. No, 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 no. Break it down. Originally, the first trial, which was eight weeks, by the way, which is torturous, um, Lasorda testified, and we were awarded $7.1 million. And what year was this? Oh, God. They asked me all kinds of years on the stand, and I couldn't remember them, but they're 10 years ago, essentially. Okay. At the very end of the trial, after we've been awarded the money, 60 days later, the judge says, I'm going to throw out the money verdict because... I'm not sure you proved, I, and one of the things I was trying to prove was I had to quit because I couldn't work for these two jokers. So he said, I'm not sure you proved that. So and if, if you didn't prove that, then I'm taking all the money away. So he took away $7 million and we had to go to appeals court. We went to an appeals court. Appeals court ruled in our favor again, but said, uh, you know, our judge was very well respected. Let's just do a new trial. Oh, sure. You know, let me go to the top of the building and jump again. We had to uh, start over a brand new trial. My lawyer, meanwhile, had gotten cancer. One of my lawyers was accused of uh, helping her husband poison a dog and take him to the desert and cut off his gonads. You should not do that. Yeah, no. And it's my lawyer. My appeals judge would turn out later to be the uh, mistress of, uh, she was on desk, the Housewives of Beverly Hills. Oh, and I know who you're Erica talking. Jane, she got, was, she got okay. crossways with Erica Jane and her husband. And one was accusing the other of doing nasties. Yeah. So we had the second trial. 
And at the second trial, my lawyer now has cancer. So I had to have another lawyer. A lawyer who told me when he first met me that he was the greatest that ever lived. And uh, asked me to look down, and I did. And he was wearing hippopotamus boots, he told me. And that's when the judge asked me to stand up. And it looked like I was looking between the guy's legs. And, you know, it was, it was just a farce. But <clears throat> we had the second trial, and he won $15.4 million. Same judge. We go full extent, all 60 days or 90 days. And the judge says, you know, I'm going to take the money away. I think your lawyer, and that was, he was speaking of the lawyer's wife, um, shouldn't have said some things that she did. And so he took all away, all 15.4 million. Now we have to have a third trial. So we go to a third trial and we're the only trial being conducted in COVID in LA Superior Court. And it just didn't work out. We ended up getting uh, 1.25. So I won three jury trials in LA Superior Court. But in the end, I got a 1.25 million payoff, uh, which paid my legal bills. Yeah. Um, I've never seen a dime. I'm still entitled to, I guess, another 1.5 in their legal bills, but we'll never see it. So it was a debacle. In the story The Athletic did on you, you said, uh, they beat me to a pulp, I admit it. No mas, no mas. I'm not Superman. I was beaten to a pulp and it took out a lot out of me. Do you still feel beaten to a pulp? Oh, God, yes. I mean, um, you know, what I did to my poor family with the depression and all that kind of stuff. I loved the column. I loved writing it. I loved going and meeting people and seeing people and getting really close in, with these people. Um, uh, and all of a sudden, stop. And uh, the perception was I'd done something wrong. What I had done wrong was I had remained myself and it just didn't fly in, in that era of time at the LA Times. So yeah, they beat me up. It was so crushing to sit there. The lawyer for the other side, who's pretty well known in LA, she'd asked Mike James, you know, um, uh, are steroids a bad thing? Are they a no-no? You know, and it was like, oh my God, shut up. I mean, they, they were mad at me for writing a column about Mark McGuire. I never met McGuire, but he was the Dodgers hitting coach and the Dodgers were last in home runs. So I went to him and said, is it time to give steroids to the boys? Which I think is pretty funny. You went up to McGuire and said that? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> what and he, he laughed. Yeah. And the Times editors didn't. They said, that's not our, that doesn't meet our standard. Well, hell, I had 700 interviews like that, you know where, you know, Phil Jackson loses to Houston. I said, aren't you embarrassed, Phil, by that playoff loss? TJ, if you don't want to give them fucking credit, this is on national TV, you know? So they lose to Houston two days later in another playoff game, and I asked the same question. Most reporters are maybe nervous, I would say scared, sure. to put themselves in that position, in especially a high leverage situation where Jackson controls the room, at the podium. And I never, I never sat with the media. I always leaned against the wall. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be associated with them. Like Phil would always once in a while said, you know, these guys have been here a lot and they've done this and that. I don't associate with them, Phil. Move on, say something meaningful. And that was the way, kind of an irreverent, kind of uh, approached everything. I, I have a lot of questions here. I've been reading your blog and I do want people to know your blog is at TJ page, the number two dot blog. And you spare few knives when it comes to certain writers at the times these days, including 
They're Newport's culture writer, Tyler Tide. So I know a little bit, but not well. Hold on. Okay, go Just ahead. give a real brief background on that. Okay. They announced with great fanfare on October 31st of last year that they had just scored a coup by hiring Tyler R. Tynes, who was on the Forbes list for under 30 great writers and all these kind of awards. And he didn't write. He didn't write. It wasn't until like six months later that he wrote. Disappeared. And I would ask questions. Where's, where's your culture critic? And he finally wrote a sidebar on the Super Bowl on the Philadelphia fans in February, because he's from Philadelphia. Right. So he wanted to write about his homeboys and, and he did. And it was a garbage story and it ran a week late because he couldn't make deadline. That's not a good start. How do you know he couldn't meet deadline? Two things. So I ran a week late and I'm very well informed by people working at the LA times. Oh, he wrote about a boxer next from Victorville and who no one had heard of who got knocked out. Now, the thing about his stories are, because he's a, quote, magazine writer and really good, is he writes, oh, legitimately six, seven, eight times longer than anything else that appears in the LA Times. That one never even made print because it was too long. And then he wrote about Brittany Griner. Well, that sounds like a great subject, right? Never interviewed her, which is probably the only thing you're interested in, um, other than she looks okay on the court. He's written so far five stories since October 31st. And they're just not readers. All right. So here's my question. Yeah. What's your question? Why do you give a shit? That infuriates me. You got the gift to work for the LA Times at the age of 30. Yeah. You're a culture critic. You're giving this great forum and you would totally, totally abuse it. I mean, I remember working in quarterly in Idaho going, what would it take to get to the LA Times or the New York Times or whatever. How can you blow that? Journalism is in enough trouble that supposedly our, our, our higher echelon don't answer the call. I guess. I do think it comes off as pretty freaking mean. I'm not, again. Oh, I'm sure it does. I'm sure right. it does. And I don't know. I always think like, well, for all I know, the guy blank. For all I know, the guy had his foot amputated. For all I know, blank. For all I know this, for all I know that. Like, I don't really know Tyler Tynes well enough to know what's going on. It just, there is a certain level of you're really mad at the LA Times. You see this kid getting paid good money by the LA Times. You're not getting paid good money by the LA Times. Not only that, they fired you. They never fired me. I quit. They did not fire me. In fact, they offered me a job to come back at that time. And I could not work for those two gentlemen. But I understand your point. I'm not even arguing a lot of the finer points. Yeah. What I think happens is I've been accused of this, uh, Marcus Thames or Tims or whatever guy who played for the Dodgers oh, created a stir like this. They said I was mean to him. And I think any one story that I write sometimes can be portrayed as mean. I think if you read them over time, I'm consistent with Tyler R. Times. He just sucks. I think people get the picture. I think they under, start to understand the guy is not taking advantage of his great opportunity. So, to run from that. So no one can write that at the LA Times. No one can say, all staffers know it. They're all talking about it. You know, they all think uh, management is uh, not doing its job by making this guy work. I'm writing a blog. Sounds like grist for me. I'm always reluctant. You're too nice a guy. Maybe to call out other writers for sucking because I feel like 
you could certainly read my stuff and say, this guy sucks yep. or read your stuff and say, this guy sucks. You know, like we all have opinions on suckiness, not suckiness. And I feel like this writing is actually is hard, at least for me, it's hard. So I don't mind saying like this guy's being a racist or this guy's being an asshole. Or this guy's behaving juvenilely, blah, 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 blah. I don't love saying that people suck as writers. You don't see. Well, that. I always point out why he sucks. I even quote from their stories as, as, as difficult as it is then to read it again. I give them their due for why they suck. It's just not a it's not a blanket statement. There are specifics involved there. And I've, I've always had a problem with that. Why as a writer would you have any challenge to criticize another writer when every writer's job is basically to challenge the people they're covering? What makes another writer sacred? that you can't do that. Well, I know why. Because in our business, we get eaten alive if you criticize another writer. We're protecting your own. And so it's like being in a locker room. All the sports writers rally around the guy who's getting beaten up. And it's like, well, that makes uh, this guy, uh, Simon, CJ, whatever he is. Boy, what an asshole. You know, I guess so is even the the Trump thing. You know, don't, 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 don't go around Trump. You make him angry and he might strike out at you. I hope to God no one ever compares me to Trump. But that is kind of what happens here. I'll go after anybody. And I also will praise just as many people. So people tend to forget that, as you well know, they dwell on the, the negative. Well, let's say Tyler Tynes writes a brilliant story next week. Would you would you note it? Certainly. Yeah. In fact, I look for it. I always look for it. Okay. I mean, I've done that with tons of people out there, starting with their athletic abilities. When they do well, you give them credit. You, if someone does well, you got to give them credit. Have you lost all hope for journalism? Hmm, good question. No, actually, I have great hope. I have great hope in the youngsters. They have the greatest chance in the world to get rich, to um, strike it rich in what they do in journalism. If they use their brain power, there's so many openings. There's so much gaps about what we're going to do to survive, we need them. We need them to do what everybody has done in the course of time in reinventing ourselves. So they need to reinvent what they're doing. Don't do what we're doing and figure what, figure out a way to be successful. So I know in that sense, I have great hope. I don't have great hope for newspapers right now. And that's what irritates me about the LA times. They're trying to kill the newspaper. And have told us that I, when I was working there, they would tell we have big meeting. You know, we're not going to have the newspaper in a year anymore. It's going to go away. And that's all it was making money for them. Do you mean their goal was to take make it a fully digital product? Yes. But I have an article in front of me. July 17th, 1973, the Daily Chronicle in Dakota. Yes. Sports editor assistant named. And it's Roger Farrell, the Chronicle assistant sports editor for one year as a name sports editor by Darren Moan, managing editor, blah, blah, blah. And then it says, Farrell announced that TJ Simers, 22, has been hired as assistant sports editor. Simers, a student in Northern Illinois and an Army veteran, has served as sports editor of the Northern Star, the campus newspaper. Wow. Simers has lived in the area since 1968. He will finish his work and his degree in journalism at Northern Illinois. It's 1973, your 22-year-old pup entering the business. Did you know anything about anything? I didn't know the difference between its and theirs. <laughs> it infuriated Roger. And I was always like, uh, give me a coin. Let me flip it. And then, you know, that I'll, that'll tell me which one I'll use. There's, God, I didn't. I, I, there's so much 
I didn't understand. The writing was atrocious. The technical stuff, ugh, horrible. I told the uh, guy I was interviewing with, uh, I'll get my journalism degree in whatever year it was. I never got my journalism degree. Worked on the job. The job was everything to me. And that's why I went from Coeur d'Alene to Beloit, Wisconsin, to Morristown, New Jersey, to Memphis, Tennessee, to uh, Denver, to San Diego, and then to L.A. Climb the ladder. Wait, I just want to say, Bobcats Dan, Jess Grand. This is the Daily Chronicle, July 18th, 1973. T.J. Simers, assistant sports editor byline. Everything was, quote unquote, grand for the Summit Hawk High School baseball team. Summit Hawk, yes. Thank you. Tuesday night, after the Bobcats behind the fine pitching of Dan Grand George defeated Hampshire 9-3. to I don't actually know why you have grand in quotes because there's no mention of a grand slam for like eight or nine paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> so you had no clue. You were just a guy trying well, to figure it out. I'm glad you were able to document the only mistake I ever made yeah. in my early career. Wait, what did you, early on, you're like a young writer coming up. Like, what does it for you as a, in journalism early on that kind of bites you and, and sends you on this journey? Well, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, Tony Grossi and I eventually, uh, Tony Grossi worked for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, good football writer. We went to do Ray Myers' departure from DePaul. Uh-huh. And most of the people listening to you probably haven't heard of Ray Myers, but he was a very famous coach. Mm-hmm. And then we went down to Billy Goats down in Chicago to meet Mike Royko. Oh, wow. And that was my goal. My dad drank at the goat every day because he worked across the street on the platform loading papers onto the Tribune trucks. It was in the early days, it was Chicago American and, and then today. But he ended up his career there loading papers. So I had met Royko when I was a pup, but I, I certainly wasn't didn't know him. So we went in the bar and there he was. He was MF and John Shulian. Do you know that name? Of course. And I just want to say for listeners who might not know, Mike Royko, one of the all-time great American columnists. In some people's estimation, the greatest. Yeah. A lousy human being, but a great columnist. One out of two ain't bad. No, I guess, depending yeah. on your point of view. And uh, Grossi's telling me, you got to go over there and meet your idol. You got to you, you gotta do it. You got to do it. And I was a scared chicken. I would, you know, you talking about me, all the people I've taken on, man, I was, I was shaking. So um, the only reason I can tell the story is because Grossi's still alive. Mm-hmm. The bartender eventually put some papers on the uh, bar and said, Mike, what do you think of these? Well, one of them was the Rocky Mountain News where I was working. And I said, that's my paper. And Royko looked up from a scotch and goes, what the f- is a Rocky Mountain News? And I said, uh, I'm going to be a, a columnist just like you, Mike. And he went off on me for like 10 minutes. Nothing but cuss words and everything else. And then I said, and you know what? I bought all your books. Royko stood up and told the whole bar, you hear that? The kids got all my books. And I said, I got them for free because I wouldn't pay any money for that shit. <laughs> well, he loved it. He abs- He came over, sat with Grossi and I until the bar was closed. And it was just Grossi, I, Royko, and the bartender. till almost morning. Telling me all the things I need to do to be a great columnist. Don't, don't write sarcasm, kid. I'm the greatest there ever was. Before you elect an ex-president, get credibility. He, I mean, he was just giving me a list of truisms. So I've lived newspapering. My dad was a uh, laborer in newspapers, but I read them all. I read five papers when he would bring them home in those early days. So I grew up with newspapering in my blood. Didn't grow up necessarily with talent in my blood to write or be the great newsman. 
but I learned what I could do and then tried to excel in that. I mentioned to you uh, over DM, I am friendly with former Dodger Sean Green. I don't maintain many friends from my baseball writing days as far as players. I can understand that. You know, Sean's a great guy, though, and a really nice guy. And um, I teach an adjunct class at, at Chapman down here. And um, he's spoken and he he mentions you every time. And he says um, he really appreciated you because you always showed up and you were bluntly honest. Sean said he always says something along the lines of, I hate when guys like would come up to you, say something really nice and then blast you in the newspaper. But TJ, if he was going to blast you, he literally would tell you, I'm going to blast you. Or why did you suck today? Or what were you thinking out there? That was terrible. That takes a certain level of chutzpah and guts and fearlessness. Did you always have that? Or is that something you had to develop? Both. I think I always had it and then ended up smoothing out the rough edges. Cause when you're standing in a locker room, and you're telling somebody they suck. Uh, the guy at the next locker, the guy across from the locker, their ears perk up and they're ready to pounce like the lions have just been fed meat. And I would stand there and go right back at them. I remember walking with the Denver Broncos off the field and they would hit me with their shoulder pads, you know, like they're tough guys. And I'd scream at them. If you guys hit the Raiders like that, you wouldn't lose to them all the time. And I wore a Raiders jacket to cover the team, you know, just, you know, I've done that all the time. You wore a Raiders jacket to cover the Broncos. Yeah. Wait, why? It's, you got to prod them all the time. I was true to who my spirit was, which is why other writers never figured it out. I'd be there in there all off season, making fun of every one of the players. Then I call them out during the season and and the other writers say, why isn't that guy pissed at you? He's giving you everything. Well, because they had seen me all during the course of the off season, making fun of them. And so you get close to them. Writing wasn't just show up and then write down like a stenographer what someone says and go home. But that's the way most of our business went for a long, long time. It's difficult to hold yourself up because you make mistakes. I was wrong a lot of times. And you're getting ripped by your comrades. You're getting ripped by your people you work with. They don't like being, how come he gets all the attention? You know, I remember Stu Nahan asking after the first press conference with the new Dodger owner, how come you asked all the questions? And I said, Stu, if I knew you wanted to know about free hot dogs for the media, I would have asked. (laughs) And not only did I say that to him in person there, then I wrote it the next day because it's just stupid. The question was stupid. Ask a question. No one took your tongue. Um, But that's the way journalism has been has been in many cases. I think it's been conducted. I asked every question usually at Phil Jackson's press conferences after the playoffs. I think there were 15 playoff uh, press conferences and the kids with the mics, you know, who I never waited for, would come over and try and get right next to me because they knew I was going to be asking them questions. That's your chance to talk. That's your chance to ask. That's what I'm being paid for. Tell me if I'm wrong. It seems like you never worried about your peers thinking, God, this guy's such a fucking asshole. No, because I couldn't win that war. As soon as the internet came along, you know, I started in the business when there was no internet. So like Brian Hewitt, who uh, used to cover golf, he may still, used to work at the LA Times and the Chicago Sun-Times. Everybody loved Brian. What a great writer. No one read him. In those days, no one read anybody else because you had to get a copy of the paper. You had to get a copy of the Philadelphia paper to read those guys. So you made your judgments and what kind of personalities they had. 
then along came the internet and it was easy to call someone an asshole yeah. and not to their face. So I lost that battle a long time ago. Uh, you know, I was going to always be the asshole. That was also a, a sports editor early in my career. And I don't remember if you remember the name, Mark Blodgen, uh-huh. uh, gifted writer for Boston. I, I, I treated him like a king and he wrote in the first letter of each paragraph going down one side of his copy story on Charles Finley. Fuck you, TJ. <laughs> and that became kind of an, uh, a big acclaim across the country. It's still every once in a while I hear about today. Uh-huh. And that was like 40 years ago. But no, I wasn't like from the beginning. Well, I feel like most people do have either a need, a desire, or an inclination to be liked, to sit in the press box. I mean, in our profession, to sit in the press box. Hey, Jim. Hey, Bob. Good to see you. Blah, blah, blah. Let's grab so-and-so after the game. You just don't have that. No, I, you know, I had the wife, the two daughters and the dog, and I usually got two or three of them to acknowledge me on a given day. It's just, it's such wasted effort. There's so many phoniness, so much phoniness out there that I wanted no party to it. That's why I didn't sit with the media. I mean, Chuck Knox, I'd go to his press conferences and I'd be waiting for Chuck outside. Everybody else would be inside dutifully sitting on their side of the room at Rams Park. And Chuck and I would have a little conversation. I'd get some information and then I'd go in and sit on the right side of the room. And every one of them noticed that. No, what an asshole, you know, whatever that. But I was getting stuff that no one else was getting and putting it in the paper. It's really interesting. It reminds me a little bit of when um, I was a baseball writer at SI and there was a writer in New York. He covered the Mets and he spoke Spanish and he would speak Spanish to the players and ask them questions in Spanish and it would piss off the other writers. And I remember you, thinking, I don't know why you guys are pissed. Learn Spanish if you want to talk about it. Like, take advantage of whatever you can. That guy was genius. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my daughter, Casey. And what is that on your ankle? It's a tattoo of a boot. You got a tattoo of a boot on your ankle? Young lady, you're only 19 years old. Dad, calm down. It's not just any boot. I am so angry. Dad, it's the kicking shoe worn by Garrett Lindholm, kicker for the 2011 Milwaukee Mustangs of the Arena Football League. I wanted to let people know they can go to royalretros.com and buy a hand-stitched Made With Love Mustangs jersey. (sighs) Did you really have to get a tattoo to do this? The butt-piercing pavilion was closed. I have a column in front of me that you wrote, pretty well known from from your career. April 26, 2013. Towel giveaway won't clean up Memphis and um, Dayline, Memphis, Tennessee. Your lead was, I've put my life on the line to be here in this rat hole with our Clippers. And so I expect more than what I got from them Tuesday in a rather flat 12 point loss to Memphis in game one. Again, I put my life on the line to be here in this rat hole, this rat hole being Memphis, Tennessee. Why would you lead with that? Uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, number one, I had been there the year before covering the Clippers in Memphis, and a columnist there tried to pick a fight with the, the broadcaster for the Clippers, an old man, Ralph Lawler. And I defended Ralph, and then they got into me and the columnists going after each other. Now, remember, I, I worked in Memphis for a year and a half, mm-hmm. so I knew the city. And when you drove into the city, there were billboards that said, be careful, this is not a safe city. They were, they were paid for by the police department. No, it's not. That was amusing. They're warning you that it's not a safe place. So the Clippers had to assign a guard to me as the series went on, because I think I wrote once there, the place smells like everybody needs a shower. Um, 
And all I was doing was, you know, what bothers people in Memphis or any city more than anything. It's where they live. You can't make fun of where they live. So they brought this up at the trial. They made a big issue of it at the trial. Our editor said I was racist and said he took a couple phone calls from people in Memphis. And, and by God, I was how did he know they were black? I guess he was they had an accent. It's so silly. Jim Murray wrote a book and one whole chapter in it is, is him as a serial city killer. The L.A. Times had done this. For years and years and years, Murray made a career. He called Cincinnati, he talked about Cincinnati, about hearing the the street machinery in the middle of the night. And, you know, he called Louisville, Lousyville or Losersville. And now I was being picked on for calling Memphis a rat hole. And we all know it is. Do you have to be careful or more careful or careful at all? Writing about places coming from the vantage point of an older white man, sort of snubbing his nose or, you know, whatever you would say at a city that's whatever, probably 85% African-American and impoverished. Like, is there the risk of coming off as racist? Uh, well, the first thing is I was in court for the last 10 years. So I guess the question is I should have been more careful, but the, the point is, no, I've never looked at myself as a white man. First of all, I mean, uh, Rick Jaffe at our place would want me to do a story on black quarterbacks and I refused. I, I cover quarterbacks. Am I naive? Absolutely. Um, I, am I in denial? Pulling the, you know, I don't like the, the the whole, we had a, you know, Plashke was a race writer. He thought everybody uh, had a, a race issue, no matter what. Um, so fine, Bill, go do that. I had trouble with that. I, I didn't think we were going to advance the cause by getting involved in that way. So I treated everybody the same. And I never once thought about Memphis being black. Uh, I know that sounds incredibly naive, but it's true. I just didn't. That does sound kind of naive, though. I don't understand. How could you not think of it? I was naive. I mean, from the time I started, you know, I went to a seminary when I was in uh, high school on the Notre Dame campus. We lived by the Aryan Nations in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and didn't know it. They were uh, in in uh, Hayden Lake and uh, down at the end of the road, never knew it until we were gone. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I just, I wasn't alert to that kind of stuff. I had nothing to offer. I had no great insight to offer. So why was I going to try and do that? What's the angriest an athlete has ever been at you? Hmm. No one's ever hit me. Uh, I remember a high school coach getting really mad and I was scared. You know, Jim Everett, Jim Everett put me against the pole, the, about a day before he did Jim Rome. And he said, why don't you and me go settle this somewhere like men? I said, Jim, if I do that, who's going to keep your name in the paper now that you're not playing? Um, and he hit the pole and he walked away. Um, there's a guy named Phillips, the catcher for the Dodgers, Jason Phillips. Uh-huh. And he was screaming at me in the, in the clubhouse, you know, get out of my face. I got problems. And I said, uh, uh, I just want to see your check because you you told Plashke that you can't make it on a major league salary. And he, and he said, uh, you want to see my check? Well, I actually want to see your bills because I don't understand what's going on here. So Jeff Kent came over and said, you're going to have to get out of get out of this guy's face. Yeah, this is his time to prepare for a game. So he hasn't played in 14 games. He ain't going to play today. So we would have those conversations. I, I'll give an example. Mm-hmm. Matt Trainer was a catcher for the Dodgers. 
who was married to Misty Trinket. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so uh, I went in the locker room one day. I had just watched on TV. We were in Arizona. I just watched on TV the story about the pilot who flew flew into the South Tower um, on 9-11. And I watched the story from his daughter's perspective, who had reached out to Derek Jeter, and Jeter had responded and had brought her to the ballpark. I was so touched by the story. Hmm. So I went into the Dodger clubhouse and said, there's Nothing but joy in my heart today. I went to every athlete, every coach. Do you have joy in your heart? Now, I know that sounds stupid, but that's what they would expect from me. I mean, I had established credibility with every one of these guys. Now, I might have been an asshole. I'm not saying I established credibility. It's a great human being. But that's the kind of question they might expect me to ask. And I got great answers from people as we worked around the room. And I got to... uh, Hanley Ramirez. And he says, my man, TJ, how's it going today? And I find, do you have joy in your heart? And uh, trainer goes, get him the fuck out of here. Uh, so I turned around the trainer and I said, well, I'll go if you go, but I'm afraid you don't have the proper credentials to get back in here. And he wanted to go outside. So we went outside. He got into my face. The PR people came out. I said, I never thought I'd be talking to an athlete in your family unless it was your wife. And just, you know, nicked him up and wrote it all the next day. The next day he came back, apologized, and we get along great. Wow. These are all intimidators. Every athlete is an intimidator, trained earlier in life. You know, if I'm an offensive lineman, my job is to kick your ass so you don't get to the quarterback. Right. And you're, you're upset that I'm going to ask you a tough question? I wrote about my daughter, the daughter who can't get a date. Now, how could anybody that I interview say that I'm too tough on them? There was a lot of thought given to a lot of this. Wait, I just want to say September 12th, 2012, the column headline was being a cheerleader is a risky job. That was it probably, yeah. And you wrote, um, but the voice telling the PR guy to get that clown out of here. So I know Matt Trainer is talking about me. What's your problem, says Trainer? And I'm thinking I'm not the one who hasn't had a hit since July 26th. Are you trying to tell me you have no joy in your heart? I said to trainer, never for a second thinking I would talk to a trainer unless it was the athlete in the family. Don't come in here causing problems about our attitude, said trainer. And folks wonder why I don't spread good cheer more often. I tell them the team is dead, but I'm here to revive it. And I remind them how important joy is to what they do. Get out of here, says trainer a second later. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Hello, anyone home? Sure, but you don't seem to be in the talking mood, I say. And trainer says, I am now. Then he gets in my face and we're belly to belly because mine is so big. What's wrong with this team? I ask. No comment, says trainer. And the whole team is watching because the beat's taking batting practice knowing they're not going to score anyway. Are you playing tonight? I ask. Curious if the Dodgers have opted to surrender. He's not. And credit to his teammates for not cheering. He's getting really upset. And I'm the one who has been stopped from spreading joy. He says it's unbelievable the local paper isn't supporting the team. And I never write anything positive. I mentioned Cruz, D. Gordon, Matt Camp, Ramirez, and never get to the Clippers, Vernon Wells, and a wonderful USC fan with ALS. I don't think you didn't need to come at Hanley like that, snaps trainer. You mean my man? He tells me to meet him outside. I have a pass to get back out, but I worry he might not. He says, I'm in the in the dugout. I agree, but I need to chat with Mark Ellis. Ellis says he has joy, while trainer interrupts to call me names that can't be printed here. In the dugout, trainer swears a lot, puts a finger in my face, and when a team official suggests he, suggests he apologize, Trainer goes on an obscenity-filled rant. I just pull out my BlackBerry and take a look at the picture 
of the twins holding their gifts. As for the joyless Dodgers, they fall flat again. <laughs> Matt Trainer was yeah. a really nice guy. Like I covered that guy. He was actually oh, he a, was? and a very good guy with the media. Um, do you ever when stuff like that is going down and trainers pissed and he's pissed at you? And for all you know, he woke up that morning and stepped on a piece of glass. Who the hell knows? Like, do you ever think maybe this guy's just having a bad day? Or is it not your job to think maybe this guy's just having a bad day? But take me as you get me. That's what it's all about. I mean, that's what happened when I did the Marcus Thames story. Uh, Matt Kemp, uh, Kent, I think it was uh, the, the big picture. I can't remember his name. We're all standing there as I'm interviewing Thames, and they know I'm going to kill him. They just know I am going to kill him. So Thames leaves, and they all beg me, don't do it. Don't do it. I said, sorry. I take you as I get you. The way you come at me is the way I present it in the paper. I'm just telling people what you're like. And so I did that with everybody. So Matt Trainer, he got the thing. That's why I got along with Manny Ramirez. Manny Ramirez, you know, could say all kinds of crap to me. I'd just write it down and I'd write what a bobo he was and he loved it and laughed. I, I think it works. I think the whole the, Matt Trainer was a nobody. So I was certainly wouldn't hurt my relationship, but I the way I was talking to him is the way I would talk to Kobe. Who and I think I had a great relationship with Kobe. What was your relationship like with Kobe? Well, one year we didn't talk to each other. He, uh, I, I tried to talk to him during the offseason, and his agent, uh, Palinka, said, Kobe's not going to talk. I said, well, give him a message. Tell him to go fuck himself. So when we came back, when he gave an interview, I would, uh, I would turn my back. But then eventually, you know, because I would say, I'd go sit on the court with him. You know, I did actually go on the court in the early days and said, my daughter can teach you how to shoot three-pointers. She's a California State champion. Let me bring her out and teach you because you can't even hit the Pacific Ocean from the pier. So um, he told me, get the, you know, whatever. And that night set the NBA record for most threes made and said, tell your daughter about that. And I said, well, you missed six shots. She would never miss six shots. So we had that kind of sparring back and forth. Some of it good naturedly, some of it not. But he made you alive because you had to be on your game. If you're going to go to Kobe and you're going to play the game of repertoire, you're going to get killed if you're not ready for it. So I love Kobe. How do you feel about Shaq covering Shaq? I think I blew it with Shaq. I was on his side or Kobe's side almost all the time. And I I, I don't think I uh, did a good job of presenting Shaq until really late in, in the game. And Shaq's, Shaq's just a wonderful person. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry I didn't get closer to him than than what I did. I wrote a book about those Lakers, and um, it does seem like the media felt compelled to either be Team Shaq or Team Kobe, and there was no sort of middle ground. And in a way, that seems like a failing of the media to a certain degree, that you felt like you had to be one or the other. But am I misunderstanding the circumstance of it all? Well, no, if you're going to cover the team, unless you want to do your milk toast approach, where you get, uh, you know, Kobe's side of something and then Shaq's side of something. And, geez, let's all go home with this happy-go-lucky story. You actually were pitted against one or the other. You were taking sides because they did not like each other. And and I blame everything on the breakup of the Lakers to Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson did not like confrontation, did not want to get involved with either one of these guys he never had the ability to step in and say, knock it off. Just didn't have the ability. Everybody thought Phil was so tough. Phil was a marshmallow. So 
I blame Phil for that. And the media, I think they all picked sides. They all became mini columnists. Isn't that terrible? When Kobe died, you obviously were no longer writing for the Times. And there was a lot of debate about how to sort of cover his death with everything that happened in Eagle, Colorado and sort of his relationship with teammates, which were not very good. You're this guy who doesn't really take any shit and you have a reputation for not taking shit and being unsparing. Do you feel like the coverage post-death was too soft or is that understandable considering the tragedy of it all? The tragedy of it all uh, bastardizes the story. I mean, it just, n- no one can get a fair read. Um, it was, just, you know, I felt uh, not worse, but terrible for his daughter. There was a chance that Kobe and his daughter were going to play against my daughter. And I was looking forward to that opportunity if it happened because I wanted to kick his ass and kick her ass. But I felt all the things that she was missing out on, I was more uh, upset about her death, not than Kobe's, but, but, but I was really bothered by that. Kobe had lived a pretty good full life until that point and getting certain things he didn't deserve it. He had so much more to offer. It's just, a, it was just a damn shame and tragedy. There was no way you could win on that. I mean, I've dealt with death. I, you know, I was there the night Hank Gathers dropped dead and I covered it and I, and I blew it. I, I did a terrible job because I covered the X's and O's of it. I went to the hospital. I went outside when they were putting the paddles on them, you know. Um, Wait, I did, DJ, I just want to say for people who may not know, Hank Gathers was a basketball player at Loyola Marymount, a superstar, would have played in the NBA had a heart condition and actually died on the court in a game, a home game, correct? A conference uh, playoff game. Okay, and you were covering game. that game for the LA Times. I was actually covering it for the San Diego Union. Okay. But just did a horrible job, man. And it's always, always bothered me because I was so cold-blooded in reporting the news. I was a reporter that night. And I, and I felt, you know, I remember Tom Friend. And I don't have great affection for Tom Fran, but Tom Fran was back in the back with the family as if he was a son of their, their, their family. Yeah. He was doing the job. I wasn't. And uh, that's always, always bothered me. So, um, yeah, Hank gathers. What's your biggest mistake as a journalist? I'm not talking about pissing people off or blah, blah, blah. Have you had any just horrible, horrible errors? I avoided one, which was the night that Elway was traded to Denver. From the uh, I was going to go to the dog track. And I, I talked to Clark Judge from Baltimore, a reporter, and he was tied in to the Elway side of things. And he said, they're going to trade him to Denver tonight. I said, Clark, you're full of it. You don't know what you're talking about. I got in the car and I started driving to the dog track. Had I continued that drive, I might be a lot richer now, but... I would have blown one of the biggest stories that I had covered in my career. And I loved Elway and, you know, I was fascinated by the guy. And so I was glad I was there that night. So I avoided that one, but I, I've always been bothered by the, by the gathers one. I'm always bothered when I don't get to know somebody as well as I could, should, whatever the right word is, you know, I'm, I'm upset that I didn't get to know LeBron. LeBron was taken away and I, you know, I would have, I would have uh, liked to got to know what kind of guy he is. Wait, it seems like you do pretty well with the notorious guys. Like I know Milton Bradley, the former Dodger, who was just, I mean. Well, know. when he came in, yeah. first thing I said to him was, Milton, I hear you're a real dick. <laughs> and he never forgot that. 
And a few weeks later, when he, he was picked up a beer bottle and threw it towards the stands from the outfield, and he was going to be suspended, he wouldn't give any interviews except to me. Because you'll call it like you see it. And I remember when you called me a dick. So Milton and I then got along famously. I mean, Jeff Kent was as tough a interview athlete to be interviewed. And we were buds. I mean, when he was on survival, I'm talking to him because he was, you had to be right when you were interviewing Jeff Kent or he would obliterate you. But what are the keys to covering assholes? Notorious assholes. Be direct. They're all used to you, someone coming up and pussyfooting around. And, you know, I know people say, I used to get Plashky this shit. Plashky and I would sit upstairs and he'd say, well, that guy's such an asshole. Then we go downstairs and he'd say, you know, there are people that pick it. Uh, yeah, you, Bill. You were just upstairs calling the guy an asshole. Why are you changing your tune now? I don't think athletes like the uh, phony sidestep. I think they appreciate it when you say, you know, I was doing it with Mark McGuire. Right? You know, I would every year I would interview um, Donald Sterling. And I'd begin by saying, Donald, you're the worst owner in all of sports. No, I wouldn't say, no, Donald, you are. Okay. You set the tone. You set the the ground rules with everybody when you put them on the spot. Let me ask you a final question. It kind of goes back to where we started a little bit. You're in your 70s. You write a blog, not really in the age of blogs anymore. You know, blogs have kind of fallen off to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, you don't have a huge social media following. Nope. This guy who like, again, had the sort of dream job, LA Times columnist, and now you don't. It seems like it fucking sucks. Like, it seems like you are generally, it sucks. And I wonder like, can you still get writing satisfaction the way you did? Is there still that juice or that electricity that you got from being a journalist? Is that still available in where you are in life? No, absolutely not. I mean, it'd be criminal for me to suggest that I could. I, I do the best I can. You know, I've tried scribbling it together and put together a book, but no one buys books now. I'm even having second thoughts about doing the blog now and, and saying just what are you trying to do? What are you, what are you trying to capture? I admit I'm, you know, I, I still haven't put the trial behind me. Um, and I'm always, uh, second guessing myself, should I have done what I did and suing the LA times? And then when they offer me my job back, cause they admitted that they kind of blew it. Should I have taken it? No matter how I answer those questions, I'm not going to make a difference now. So the only thing I think I can do is try and, uh, you know, help younger writers out. And I don't know how to do that because I'm not going to teach. I don't have answers. Is there an argument to be made that there's a certain element of the repercussions of not really giving shit about relationships along the way and sort of having that sort yeah. of fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And then here you are and people are kind of like, well, fuck you. So in other words, I'm getting my, getting my due now, my comeuppance. I'm not saying you are or not. I'm just saying, is that a factor? Well, I think uh, that's kind of why people don't ask the tough questions, why they don't, you know, well, I remember a TV person saying to me, well, if I do that, they'll never talk to me again. You know, that's the ultimate comeuppance. Yeah. When you're in uh, journalism, if I'm really tough with this person, they might not talk to me again. I never had that problem. I think I once figured it out. There were like five people that never spoke to me again because of what my delivery and demeanor was. But I also still had the, the form of the LA Times. So that might explain why they were still bullied into talking to me. And there's a bully was a part of it. You had to do that to leverage whatever word you want to attach to it. I think it happens in our business. 
Like I never gave a damn about the uh, other journalists. I always celebrated their success, got upset, you know, like what we're doing now, all the, I, I, I think the future is in the youngsters and all these guys that are doing around the horn and ESPN and everything else, none of them are trained. None of them, none of them have lifetime experiences. They're just faces that come on and can rap poetic and, and make the younger crowd smile or get, you know, raise a fist. I'd like to see more. So, but I'm not the right person because you're right. I played myself off the stage and that's just the way it is. I didn't choose to be cozy with a lot of the media in the profession. The ones that are, are my friends, but I don't need more than that. I just want to say the one thing I really, really admire about you. And it's something that I have aspired to attain. I do not shy away from asking hard questions. I don't shy away from knocking on strange doors. Like I do it. But I I have to get myself up to do it. Like I do have to sort of, okay, you're just going to do this. You're going to do it. You're going to do it. I might drive around a block four times before knocking the door of someone. Like I have to get myself up to do it. And it seems like you somewhere along the way just developed, uh, fuck you, I'm doing this, that I do not have. And I think 99% of us in the business do not have. But it was always a struggle for me. You know, I have butterflies. When you walk up to somebody in their environment, you know, I remember... I covered the Yankees for for a couple of years as a young guy, and I walked up to Thurman Munson, and uh, you know Thurman, T.J. Cyrus, Morristown Daily Record. How are you? Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, well, I was uh, wondering, uh, you know, what's your plan? Fuck you. I got fourteen of them, and uh, wrote them all down, and then I could go out. We would go to. We were in Toronto, and and uh, we we're in a bar, and here's Thurman buying us all beers. And laughing it up. And then the next day we go to the clubhouse and it's fuck you again. I learned that athletes are performers. You've got to deal in their element. And if you can, put your element in there too. Because it should not be unequal footing. And that's what I always tried to, to conquer. But it scared the hell out of me. I'd get into it with Frank Robinson. No one, no one wants to get into it with Frank Robinson under any circumstances. Yeah. And I would be scared, actually. But it was part of the job. It wasn't trying to be an asshole. Now, that's the mistake I think a lot of people in our profession made. They all said, well, he's just setting out to be an asshole. He's just setting out to make himself a story. No, I can say, honestly, that was not the case. If I didn't ask the question, I didn't think anybody else would. Wait, you were an interesting thing. I'll just, I'll keep you for a second longer. You were covering the Yankees for the Daily Record. Did you like covering Reggie or did you hate covering Reggie when he was at the Yankees? I thought Reggie was um, a little bit the original Kobe. Uh, he was fascinating. Everything was calculated with Reggie. Fran Healy was his bobo, his right-hand man, and who would give him comfort. But uh, I did the. I got involved in the story where uh, Martin wanted him to bunt, yeah. and Yogi sent the signal down, and Reggie ignored it, and then Reggie did bunt. I'm the one who informed Reggie he was suspended. Because everybody went to Martin's office, and I did too. Martin said he suspended him, and I immediately left to go down the wraparound tunnel in Yankee Stadium to find Reggie and to tell him he was suspended. So that was memorable for a, for a young guy, you know, breaking all this kind of stuff as as they were going on, and all the big beat guys coming around then, help us out, help us out, which I did, by the way. So that's what I say about learning on the job. I mean, how do you learn to deal with a Reggie Jackson? 
who could literally slice and dice you in a group interview to where you feel like you would never ask a question again. July 18th, 1978, the Daily Record headline, Bund earns Jackson suspension. And here's your lead, which is great. How long can a man survive while just eating Reggie bars? That ghastly thought stares Reggie Jackson in the face today. At 12.03 this morning, Billy Martin told a group of reporters he was giving his part-time right fielder and designated hitter some time off without pay for disobeying orders in the heat of battle. While Martin spat out the words in his office, Reggie Jackson was walking toward his parked car. Reggie, Martin just announced that you're suspended, said a trio of gasping reporters. Didn't anybody tell you you were suspended? Jackson was asked. Billy hasn't talked to me in a year and a half. No, you guys told me, he said. Anyway, it's a really great column. For people who don't know, Billy Martin, Reggie Jackson, 1978 Yankees. Martin was a manager. Jackson was a star. But Billy Martin absolutely hated him. Yep. When you're dealing with those kind of characters as early as 78, you've gone down the path with a lot of, you know, I used to tell the Dodgers, you think your clubhouse stuff. Go into the Yankees clubhouse with the characters that they have in there. I got to say, uh, TJ, I think you should write a book. I think you're... And I don't know now, I know you you thought about writing a book about the, the trial and everything you've gone through. I just think your career journeys are insane. And I think all the things you've seen and all the different people you've met and the conflicts and the highs and the lows, I think it's a great, I got to say, I think it's a great saga. So I am, I'm on the, uh, on the side of you writing a book. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you doing this. We all stare down as we get older, our, our mortality in journalism and the cemeteries are filled with the irreplaceable men. And um, if nothing else, I'm reading your blog, damn it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate it and enjoyed this. Uh, thank you. Well, I want to thank today's guest, TJ Simers, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow TJ on Twitter at TJ Simers Page Two and visit his blog at tjpage2.blog. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really grateful. Music is by the sizzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.